0: The following program was recorded on July 22, 2009.
1: ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts, Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160. The channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz.
0: And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. This program is a little bit different from the others on ReachMD because there's two of us in the studio and we're live.
1: And we're looking for your feedback right now as we cover topics across the field and talk to people you want to hear from. Today we're gonna welcome Congressman Peter Roskam to the show. He's a Republican member of the US House of Representatives from the 6th District of Illinois. He's also a member of the Ways and Means Committee, which Michael, as you know, they've been working very long hours to help create one of the healthcare reform bills that's currently floating around in the Capitol.
0: Yeah, they are working hard, Matt. And and while there's a a, a lot of mostly partisan issues to resolve in the healthcare debate, we wanted to have Congressman Roskam on the show because he has a message and a job for us. For you, the practicing physicians out there, they'll share this with you in just a moment and we'll take your calls as time allows. The number is 888-MD-1-REACH. That's
1: 888-631-7322. We'll also look at a couple of doctor-patient relationship issues percolating in the media these days. We hear a lot about doctor-patient concerns, but these raise some legitimate questions. You can stop by the ReachMD forum with us to find out. Our number again, 888-MD-1-REACH.
0: That's 888-631-7322.
1: Well, Michael, every day there are new developments in this political battle over health care reform. And to be frank, I think a lot of us in the medical community are frustrated at the tenor of the debate in Washington. And we're upset that our concerns are taking a back seat because, frankly, our voices just aren't heard.
0: Right. We're in the middle of a fast-moving and confusing period, uh, not only for doctors, but I think for everyone involved. Everyone who sees the need for change, but many of us feel stymied by the process and unheard or removed from that process.
1: So to help us shed some more light on this situation, we're welcoming someone with a very front row seat on the debate, Congressman Peter Roskam from the 6th District of Illinois, and he joins us now on Second Opinion Live. Welcome, Congressman uh, Roskam.
0: Hey, doctors. Good to be with you. Hey, Good to be with you. Thank you. Congressman, listen, first question. Assuming we all want to improve and fix our health care system, we're all on the same page there. The first question is, are, are physicians like us being heard in the debate?
2: I think it's a it's a mixed bag right now. From the conversations that I've had, there's many physicians who feel as if this whole debate is, is eclipsing right past them, and they don't necessarily feel well-served, frankly, by some of the organized medical voices and as kind of grassroots doctors, rank-and-file doctors who are just practicing every day. The, the physicians that I've been interacting with in my district, aren't really pleased with what they hear coming out of Washington. And I sense a, a bit of frustration there. I have three siblings who are physicians and 2 siblings sibling-in-laws who are physicians, and I think um, I'm in touch with them, and that's the feedback that I've been getting.
1: Well, we have a great situation here in that you held a forum for all doctors in your district around late June, and uh, Michael happened to be there, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, is that yeah, right? It was, that's correct. It was...
2: Uh, I, I thought it was incredibly helpful for me, you know as you, it, when you 're a member of congress you 're dealing with a wide range of issues, and I wanted to open up a conversation with the physicians that I represent because look it, it, is, it is doctors who I think should should have a tremendous amount of influence in this process and what i 've observed over the years is that the the medical practice today tends to really rob physicians of the joy of practicing, the reason that they went in, and the sense of calling that they had because they're sort of getting nickel and dime to death and they're spending time on 800 numbers getting getting procedures approved. And so I wanted to make sure that, that the doctors that I represent in the suburbs of Chicago had an opportunity to at least let, let their congressmen know what they thought.
1: Well, it's a great opportunity because being that the two of you were there, you both have uh, different perspectives on what the take-home messages from that forum were. I'd love to hear from the two of you what you both kind of came away from that forum with. Well, let How me about go,
0: you, Jack? What did uh, you hear? Let me go first. What I, what I heard, what I took home from you was that physicians not only have a lot of respect in America still, but we have a lot more power than we know. And that there are things we can do by informing our patients to, to get to their congressmen and senators to slow this train down so we can look at it. That's what I took home.
2: Yeah, I think that that is clearly one of the takeaways, the idea of going to members of Congress and saying, look, this," but what you're talking about, what, what the House of Representatives is debating right now is a, a massive change as it relates to health care. And it's not something that, that should be rushed through. Congress should take the time and let the American public look at this over the August recess If it's a good idea this month, it's going to be a good idea after Labor Day. And there is absolutely no reason to put up a false false deadline that just creates an undue sense of urgency. And we've seen, I mean, with all due respect to the majority in Congress right now, we've seen what happens when Congress rushes things, right? I mean, a stimulus plan that got rushed through that has underperformed last fall. Under the previous president, a financial services Wall Street bailout that got rushed through that has underperformed. Let's not do the same thing with healthcare.
0: Well, right. One of the one of the take-home things that I also got, which woke me up, was that, you know, most of our healthcare system is really working, and we're we're pulling out numbers here of people who are not ta- being taken care of, and you seem to break through that and and say we're actually talking about a much smaller number of people. So, are, are we trying to change? the whole health care system for really a tiny number of people.
2: Yeah, I think, I think you've accurately you know, put, put your finger right on it. There's a common number that people toss out that, that suggests, well, there's 45 million Americans who are not covered by health insurance. And that's technically true at any given point in time if you ask the question like this. And this is what pollsters say. They ask the question, during the past 12 months, at any point, were you without health insurance? Well... That's really a different question, and that's not how it's reported. The other thing is, if you break down the 45 million number, um, you'll find that about 10 million are folks who are here illegally. About 5 million are younger folks who are between the ages of 21 to 25 with some simple changes could be put on their parents' insurance. Um, There's a large group, literally millions, who are actually Eligible for Medicaid and aren't aren't signed up for the system, but when you really scrub it down, you come up with a number that's closer to about 12 million people who really need our help. I think the common understanding is that 12 million, boy, they're folks that are that don't have access to the current system uh, based on pre-existing conditions or a whole host of other things that we're familiar with, and they really do need our help. Let's concentrate our time and our energy on them as opposed to kind of blowing up the whole the whole system.
0: Okay, so what would our listeners out there are the, the in the trench doctors, just like you spoke to at your meeting, what message would you give to them on what we can do to be heard or to, to slow this thing down so we can look at it intelligently? Well, in,
2: in my opinion, the the key right now is to to make sure that the so called public option, health insurance uh, government-run health insurance is not enacted into law. And I think if it is enacted into law, it's going to be essentially Medicare for everybody and Medicare race for everybody, which, as you all know, is is n- not satisfactorily compensating physicians for their time. So um, the number one thing is to is to stop the public option. I offered an amendment in the Ways and Means Committee that would have prohibited the Health and Human Services Secretary from using Medicare rates for uh, price setting on this new public option if it comes in. And ultimately, my amendment was rejected by the Democrat majority on on the committee. So I think that this is clearly the the agenda is to move a, a, a massive medicare for all system. So in my view, if we can stop the public option over the august recess, then we can come in and have a rational conversation, bipartisan conversation about trying to make trying to trying to make healthcare more accessible to more Americans. We can do that, but I think what physicians need to do is to reach out to their members of Congress individually, either where they practice or where they live, or maybe both. And, and that should be the ask. Please don't support a public option. We support health care reform, but public option is really a prelude to a single-payer system.
0: So you're, you're telling us that it's, it's a prelude to socialized medicine in America.
2: Yeah, there's no question about it. Look, the Lewin Group, which is a, has a reputation in Washington as a nonpartisan think tank, evaluated this plan, and they came to the conclusion that um, 114 million Americans will move out of the, the private insurance and move into the public option. I have I have friends of mine who have, well, you know, companies, a couple hundred employees in my congressional district, people that I represent who have told me, Peter, look, if, if, I, I pay 15% of my payroll right now on health insurance, and if I can drop that and and pay a an 8% penalty to the federal government, um, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to put all of my employees in this public option, and I'm going to end up saving 7% of my payroll. So what will end up happening is we will all end up in this single-payer system, and and that i think ultimately is is not a place where where we want to be and i think physicians is the one group that that really tends to be highly thought of by most Americans. We have a great deal of confidence in our physicians. And the physicians are out there saying, whoa, whoa, you know what? This this is not a place we want to be. I think it has an incredible amount of influence.
0: Well, thank you very much, Congressman. You're you're my hero here, and uh, we hope to get your message out there further and have doctors stop this. So thank you for joining us.
2: Delighted to be with both of you. Thanks. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Some okay, really so what do you stuff. think? Yeah, definitely <laughs> I mean, interesting.
0: Here's a guy who's speaking out for physicians and, and making a plea that we don't have socialized medicine, which is, I think, something a lot of us don't want to do. And uh, it, it's up to us. I mean, you get you know, I would I would urge our listeners to get off the phone, get on the phone in your office, talk to your patients, call your your senators and your your representatives, and say, slow it down. We want to look at it. And if you really believe we don't want a single payer system, give them the message. If you do believe we want a single payer system, give them that message too. It's 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 America. We get to we should be the ones that make these decisions here.
1: Yeah, and he, has, he definitely has a good perspective on this public option. I mean, for for him, he looks at at this as an institution that if once put out there uh, isn't going to be competing regularly with, the, uh, uh, with pi- private insurance and that government won't allow it to fail and therefore uh, they're going to have to subsidize it. That's going to change the rules. I mean, I think that's really interesting that he, uh, that he puts that out there.
0: Right. Our number here is 888-MD-1-REACH if you've got something on your mind. And
1: if you're just joining us, you are listening to Second Opinion Live on Reach MD XM-160. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz alongside Dr. Michael Greenberg. All right, Michael, now we're going to introduce a new feature to Second Opinion Live. Let's call it the news quiz. Okay,
0: the news quiz, and here's the deal. We're going to take an issue in the news, break it down, and come up with a question that we think gets at the core of the issue, but isn't something that's receiving as much notice as it may deserve. We'll pose it to you, our listeners, give you some time to think about it, maybe look it up if you can, and we'll give you the answer later in the show.
1: So keeping on the theme of health system reform, today's issue revolves around the word rationing. We've all heard this term used to portray one key criticism of the current reform proposals, that in a reform system with increased government oversight, that government could decide what health care they'll pay for and what, frankly, they won't.
0: And we wondered what this cost limit is in a country like Great Britain, where the government has much greater influence which treatments are paid for and which are not. They measure this in terms of how much does a treatment cost and how long will it extend a patient's life. So the question is, what's the most that the national health care system in Britain will spend on a treatment that will extend a patient's life by one year? The answer coming up in a bit, so stay tuned after you call your congressman's. And on to the ReachMD forum, Matt. We're going to look at the issue of informing patients about their laboratory results. Though it's a concern I think many of us have been aware of for some time, a new set of data tells us we don't seem to have a handle on the issue.
1: That's right. In this uh, particular case, a study was published in the Archives of Internal Medicine and it reviewed the records of about 5,400 patients, ages 50 to 69, across 23 practices. What they found is about nearly 2,000 abnormal lab results. And this is the kind of the interesting thing. One in 14 of it, of which about 7% or so, wasn't reported to the patient. And whether that was because there was no documentation or they just didn't report it, that both accounted for for what they found.
0: Right. And I can tell you from being in practice, systems to put this in place are very, very difficult, at least for me. We do get laboratory results reported directly to us from pathology specimens we send out as a dermatologist. And that we have a system, everyone's in the book, we call them and we know if we didn't get one. But the difficulty here comes, Matt, in my office at least, when I give a patient a prescription to go out and get a blood test, I don't know whether they got it or where they got it or when they got it. Mm -hmm. And if the lab doesn't fax me the results, I'm lost.
1: It's just sent out into the ether for you?
0: Yeah. So I think that there's something in, in this about patient responsibility. And what I do is I make my patients call me. I say, please call me When you've had the test, and if you don't hear from us in a week, call us back. But you know what? Patients don't do that.
1: Yeah, they don't do that very much.
0: (laughs) I know. Listen, I'm just as guilty. I I have like three postcards or two on my desk or however from my dentist saying that it's time for a checkup. I have one from my ophthalmologist saying it's time for a checkup. We're so busy these days. We don't follow up on stuff like this.
1: But in our, like, let's just just say in our litiginous society, is is it feasible or viable for us to put the onus on the patient?
0: I think it's it's viable for us to include the patient in the equation of helping us to helping us to work together for this, this is a hot malpractice issue. Um, according to the study, diagnostic errors are most common because of uh, the most common malpractice claim. So we have to find a system that works, and I, I, I don't think electronic medical records going to help either. They just keep the so. records. Um, make your patients be part of the picture. Uh, make them be responsible. I think that that's key. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think that the failures to inform are as common as as the study says they are, or do you think that was a uh, an overstatement?
0: Um, I think that's true because, you know, the systems are so difficult. Like in my medical records, um, if a patient cancels a visit, and I don't know that, and I don't know that there's a lab result waiting in that I was going to speak to them about, I may not see them till the next visit, which could be months down the road. So we have to have a better system to be put in place. And part of it is going to be the patient calling for the results. I'm amazed at the number of people who come in six months later and haven't asked about their lab results.
1: Well put. Now it's your turn. The ReachMD poll wants you to voice your opinion and vote. ReachMD XM160 now presents the ReachMD poll. All right, our next stop today is the ReachMD poll, where we're going to tackle another progression in the doctor-patient relationship. This one involves allowing your patients full and unfettered access to the notes you've taken during and after their visit with you. What do you think of that, They will not
0: be able to read my notes. They're all (laughs) smudged and smeared from real link. Now, what they're doing uh, is setting up uh, a portal for... uh, for private practice notes, and they're also setting up a real-time 24-hour access to doctor's notes. This is at is Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, and they hope to start it by the end of the year and could reach up to 25 or 30,000 patients. So patients can access their medical records at any time, but there's a private section that you can go and put your private notes in, so they really can't get to their whole medical record, and I wonder if they should.
1: Well, you know, they—they. They, it's interesting. Their attitude is that they have this private portal up there just as a, a safekeeping measure, but they don't expect physicians to use it very much. I mean, do you agree with that? Or do you think that that is a very important integral aspect of taking notes as a physician?
0: You have to ask the question... What is the medical record for? Is it reading material for patients or is it for you to be able to follow your treatment course or for other physicians to be able to look at it and know what you're thinking? And if we do this for physicians, we write things in certain technicalities and we write our thoughts like rule out cancer. And patients, if they look at that medical record, they're going to miss that rule out. They see cancer, they panic. I think this is going to cause more problems than it's worth. You're going to have to start writing and editing in your head what you're writing the medical record. And that's not what it's for, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, well, not to mention the the problems already in our trying to abbreviate every single thing we we put down there. What does SOB become to a patient versus to a physician? Very, very different meanings.
0: That's right. It's kind of the same problem when patients go to get information on the Internet, in my opinion. Um, They they get information that they really don't know how to interpret. And I have patients who come into me, and they're terrified of some stuff they read on the Internet. And they're, They swear that they have it. I mean every headache is a brain tumor, every spot on their skin is a melanoma, and it looks like it because it's described in there. So when they start reading our notes and they look at things that we 've said, are they, it's going to be so open to misinterpretation, especially if and what if there's personal things you want to put in there that the patient told you um, and your interpretation of it, you know mm-hmm. the patient should seek psychotherapy for this it's like. Yeah. I think this is really opening up a can of worms.
1: Well, the counter argument being that we are still within a litigious society, it keeps coming up again, and we are, in fact, writing notes that we are assuming are potentially going to be seen by others at any given time.
0: I understand that, and we also have the idea that Patients' records are their records. But somewhere there's got to be a balance between their medical record that they can have access to and some of the things that we need to put in. For instance, if I'm thinking that a patient may have a metastatic melanoma, may have, I don't want to write that in the record that they can read that until I've determined that they really don't have it. So I think there's a whole issue here we need to discuss. Good stuff,
1: Michael. So what's your reaction? Share your thoughts with us on our website, reachmd.com, where you can vote on the ReachMD poll. We're looking forward to hearing from you.
0: And there's that music again. I love that music, Michael. Yes, let's, let's get you the answer to our ReachMD quiz question of the day. As you may recall, we're looking for the answer to a question about the alleged rationing of medical care we're hearing about in other countries' health care systems. This question pertains specifically to Great Britain. For a treatment that extends a patient's life by one year, what was the British national health care system willing to pay?
1: Drum roll, please. The answer is... 30,000 pounds, the equivalent of $49,000 per year of life. That is the upper limit, Michael. A recent article from the New York Times frames the situation around use of a kidney cancer drug called Sutant. Evidence suggests that the drug extends life by an average of six months at a cost of nearly $54,000, so... Given that situation, and you know Britain, what happened to Britain, that drug.
0: Britain's board originally said no to Sutton, but the case has caused such an uproar in Britain and abroad that it raises the question of what's the price of life? A question really with no cr- concrete answer, and the ruling was since reversed. So the, the question in my mind is we, we all ration. Whether we like it or not, mm-hmm. Healthcare is being rationed even by Blue Cross, all right? And can, if we're going to go to fixing our healthcare system, can we really have an honest, real discussion about the value of life at a certain quality?
1: Yeah. Can we even bring it up in a situation in which it's really too hot, it's too political, it's too emotional to even put on the table, at least on Capitol Hill and anywhere else, it seems.
0: Exactly. We, we, we value life so much. And I mean, what are we going to do, especially when we're spending, it's estimated, I've heard, like 50% of our health care dollars in the last three or four weeks of people's lives. That's a huge saving. But are we are we Americans ready to have this discussion yet? And are we physicians ready to have these discussions with patients? Are we prepared to have those kind of discussions? Well, grandma's 96 and has an end? stage illness and we really don't want to put her in the ICU. Are we going to do that?
1: Yeah. I mean, aren't we already currently rationing just in an invisible manner? I mean, our weights in the ERs, our high patient copayments, uh, low reimbursements to doctors. I mean, all of that implies rationing, but it's just under the table. It's something we're not talking about.
0: Right. So maybe it's time if we're really going to fix health care to be honest about what we're doing and be honest about what we have to do and make some hard choices. It's alleged that in Britain, if you're over the age of 60, you can't have kidney dialysis if your kidneys fail. And I'm 60 and I don't like that. Nor should you. All right. All right. We do try to bring a little levity to this serious program. Matt, so we'll close the show today with ReachMD's That's News to Me, reviewing a curious news headline from the world of medicine.
1: And this story is most curious, Michael. And I mean that in a good way because of the source. It's a new article put forth by, of all, of all groups, MTV in partnership with Vanderbilt University, and they're aiming to quantify the future effects of hearing loss as a result of intentional exposure to really, really loud music.
0: Was John Bon Jovi in on this study? Absolutely. Okay, this is published in the Journal of Pediatrics, and the study examined more than 2,500 responses to a 73-question survey on the website. MTV.com, nearly half of the respondents said they experienced tinnitus, hearing loss, or other symptoms after loud noise exposure. The point is, the article says that if doctors talk to their patients, that patients will listen to us. I'm not sure I believe that. You're not buying that? But I, I don't think so. I tell my patients a lot of stuff and they don't do it. I tell them not to smoke. But the thing is, we've seen an explosion of MP3 players in the past few years. I walk into the office, kids are listening to loud music, I tell them to turn it down, I try and tell them that it's going to hurt their ears.
1: You I, can't control me, Michael. I, that's that the term? That's right. <laughs> that the response typically That's get right. But,
0: but we've done things in the past in public health. The The American Academy of Durham has gone on a a, a program of getting people to use sunscreen, and it's working. We got people to wear seatbelts. I also want to get people to not use their cell phones in their cars while they're driving. There are public health issues that are better because it was taken up by the medical profession, either our professional organizations or ourselves. So I guess the take-home message to our listeners is when you're in your office, I think you have a responsibility to tell patients when you see them, when when you can hear the music across the room, the same way as you're not going to let them smoke in your office. Um, you're not going to let them do things that are, that are really harmful. So we can really make a huge difference on public health if we take a few seconds to point these out to our patients. Yeah.
1: I mean, I guess it is commendable that MTV is working to educate on the issue. I mean, you look at that and I look at that and we say, MTV, give me M- a break.
0: MTV, right. I, do I, be- I believe the Vanderbilt part, but I don't know about MTV.
1: <laughs> we half agree with this study. Yes. Uh, but it is commendable. At least they're, they're trying to put something out there that uh, that could be effective for us.
0: Yeah, because hearing loss is really serious. And you know what? I listen to the music too loud. And my, I listen to, to this station too loud in my car especially when I'm on (laughs) so so turn your listen you can listen to us everybody but turn your radio down a little bit we don't want to damage your hearing um, but still listen all the time please
1: and with that we are out of time today here on Second Opinion Live I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz
0: and I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg for more about ReachMD Radio on XM160 visit our website reachmd.com we thank you for joining us today on ReachMD and please come back
1: We'll see you then.